I blame physicists for this for coming up with a unifying <laughs> theory that's like yeah. trap everything. I don't know if we can do that about brain or not because brain is true for physics as well, but brains were not like designed. They were evolved. Once I got into the dopamine more, I started liking it more because uh, it has some idiosyncrasies that are very particular about dopamine. You know, sort of like the very simple story on the one hand, you know, the very complex reality on the other hand, and the co relationship between computation and, and experiments, and all of that ma ma makes it very enticing for me. So this adds, I think, even more complexity that, like, what is the computational unit of the brain? I actually think a little bit of the opposite, which is I think that AI and neuroscience are actually coming closer together. This is Brain Inspired. Hey everyone, it's Paul. Those voices you heard uh, were from Ali Mohebi. Uh, who's at University of California at San Francisco, and Ben Inglehard, who right now is at Princeton, but will be starting his uh, own lab at the Technion Israel Institute of Technology. So Ali and Ben love dopamine, uh, so much so that they are two of the organizers of the virtual dopamine conference that just had its second iteration. They also love each other, which unfortunately I had already stopped recording when they expressed that mutual admiration. A lot of love in this episode. But today's conversation was originally intended to be a precursor, sort of an introduction, for the panel discussion that I moderated at the recent Dopamine Conference. And that discussion that I moderated, you'll hear soon. It'll be the next episode uh, that I release. But when people love something, they love to talk about it also. And so we did. We talked. And it went longer than we thought it was going to go. And here we are with a full conversation about dopamine. So as you probably know, dopamine is a neuromodulator uh, in the brain, and it's become kind of a darling in AI and in neuroscience because its release in the brain correlates well with a computational process called the reward prediction error uh, and helps drive learning in that way. So during our conversation, you'll, you'll hear more about that. You'll actually get the backstory of how dopamine came to be important, uh, how people have thought of it in the past, uh, how it came to be the darling of reinforcement learning in AI, um, in its simple, elegant role, computing that reward prediction error, and how now, like everything else in the complex mess and or beauty of biology, it seems to be involved in plenty of other cognitive functions. So this conversation is a lot about dopamine and its various roles in cognition, and uh, we talk a lot about those various cognitive functions. And we talk about how to think about the role of dopamine and other neuromodulators with respect to integrating them into a computational role with what we traditionally think of as computing events in the brain, like the spiking of neurons. And I also get their reflections uh, on the deep reinforcement learning panel that you will hear soon. Thanks for listening and enjoy Ali and Ben. Ali, Ben, thanks for doing this. So, you know, normally what I do is in the introduction to these things, I kind of introduced what the topic was about, but I thought it'd be fun to have you guys on since you uh, co-organize the dopamine conference and, and to kind of get your reflections on the conference uh, as a whole, but also on this panel that people will be listening to in just 
uh, a moment or two. So I, I guess, you know, I don't usually do this either, but maybe can you just say a word about who you are and, and what you do? Ali, we'll start with you. Oh, okay. So yeah, I, I can start. I'm Ali Mohebi. I'm a postdoc at UCSF Department of Neurology, and I am very interested in dopamine and what role it plays in motivation, learning, cognition, etc. Okay, so I was going to, I immediately want to ask a question, but Ben, maybe you could say just a word about yourself. Yeah, so I'm Ben Engelhard. I'm also a postdoc, uh, currently at Princeton in the neuroscience department and starting my own lab in a couple months in the Technion Institute in Israel. Congratulations, Ben. Thanks so much. Although I, we were just talking a, a moment ago about how hard that move is going to be, in, especially in today's climate uh, and just in general, selling cars, things of that nature. Yeah, but you know, with, with three kids, I'm sure it's going to be a breeze. So, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> How did you guys get interested? So first of all, this, is, this was year two of the, the dopamine, the virtual dopamine conference. Right. Uh, just give us the backstory of how, how the conference got started and, um, and, and tell us all about the super high demand that led to it being uh, uh, continued in year two. Yeah, so I'm going to give a brief, a brief response and let Ali take over because uh, the way I sense it started is one day Ali Moebi woke up and said, we're in the middle of a lockdown. It's, I think it was April 2020 or something like that. Uh, and he said, you know, we can't do anything. We can't go outside. We can't have a conference. We can't meet people. Let's change that. And so he basically recruited a few people, either students or postdocs. We were five in total. And he said, you know, let's, let's make a conference. And so that's how we started. And then we ended up organizing everything pretty quickly. Um, we started contacting all the speakers. Uh, we had a, an amazing response. We connected, like, you know, some of the best speakers in the field and pretty much everyone said, yeah, I want to do it because nobody could do anything, I guess. So, uh, we were the only, the only option in town. <laughs> and that's how the, the first one started. And I think that because it was available to everybody anywhere in the world, uh, we got over 2000 people registering, which is a pretty large number for a, sort of a niche you know, neuroscience conference, you know, for the subject of dopamine, not just, you know, neuroscience in general, but just dopamine. Yeah. Uh, so that was a, a huge success. And also the quality of, this, of the talks was, uh, was very impressive. So Ali, did it, did it come to you in a dream? So you just woke up and, and it was Dude, there, it was huh? Like, so I live in San Francisco, which means that I'm locked in a like teeny tiny studio box. And then when we went into lockdown, I was going crazy. I'm just bouncing off the walls. <laughs> I thought you were so, going to talk about a psychedelic experience because you, you went, I thought you were going to go that route there. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, I think uh, my friend Christine Liu, at some point she suggested this idea on Twitter that... Well, our dopamine meeting is going to get canceled. We were all supposed to go to Montreal for this dopamine meeting. And then she was like, yeah, it would be nice if we have like a gathering of a few of us enthusiasts. And then during a psychedelic trip, perhaps, or something, it came to my mind that what if we do this conference? What if we put a conference together, a virtual dopamine conference? And I reached out to Christine and I'm like, Christine, Let's do this. It was an amazing experience for all of us. Yeah. So the dopamine, dopamine, so my role in this was I moderated this panel that people are going to hear that is was based off the premise of modern 
the explosion of modern deep reinforcement learning and kind of how that interacts with the rest of the dopamine story. So, which is, I don't know how much of the dopamine, how much of the conference is focused on the sort of systems neuroscience part of dopamine versus the reinforcement learning side. It seems like a pretty big blend uh, of all of it. But how did you guys get into dopamine? I, that dopamine was something I always avoided when I was going through a computational neuroscience <laughs> program because it was too systemsy, you know, uh, too too wet. And it was, but it was everywhere already back then. Dopamine, dopamine. But I was like, ah, it's unimportant. So how did how did you guys get into it? So I got into it. I got into it by mistake. Uh, my PhD had nothing to do with dopamine. I was working on cortex, you know, doing like cortex-like things, you know, brain-machine interfaces and learning and stuff like that. And I think the link to learning a little bit maybe led to it in that, in that direction. But it was mostly when I was looking for postdocs in the US. And I traveled all around the US and talked to a bunch of people. And I started to think what I want for my postdoc. And what, mm. what there was at Princeton was this sort of, a, for me, an amazing opportunity working with people like Ilana Witten and, and David Tank in a virtual reality system with mice and sort of cutting edge technologies. And it was about dopamine, which is related to learning, which is something that I would care about. So, you know, all these things together, I said, let's do this. And once I got into the dopamine more, I started liking it more because uh, it has some, I, I would say, some idiosyncrasies that are very particular. Uh, we, even within the system neuroscience field, um, you know, there's something very particular about about dopamine. You know, sort of like the very simple story on the one hand, you know, the very complex reality on the other hand, and the co- relationship between computation and, and experiments, and all of that make, make, makes it very enticing for me uh, to study. That the, the the very simple story that you that you referred to there um, is what is what deep reinforcement learning is kind of based on. It's it's one of the most quote unquote successful uh, stories in uh, bringing together things like artificial intelligence and things like neuroscience. Um, that dopamine underlies a reward prediction error that leads to reward, and there's very specific circuitry associated with it. But but the other thing that you alluded to is that. Uh, that's not that's not the only story, and we talk about that some in the panel as well. But uh, so I just wanted to make sure that uh, we ham- I hammered that home. That, that that I believe that's the particular story you were referring to. Yes, it is. You know, T learning. Uh, you know, the the, the ideas by by Schultz showing the reward predictionary response of dopamine neuron and how it relates to learning. Then the idea that this is basically a signal that's propagated, you know, throughout the brain and mostly striatum. Uh, the signal goes, uh, let's say, to ventral stratum, the accumbens, which is sort of considered one of the sites for learning. And then you uh, potentiate the corticostriatal connection, the synapses, you know, based on this reward prediction error signal. And that's how you learn. And, you know, that works great for simple things like polar conditioning. Um, and there's been a bunch of experiments showing that. But the more we learn about the circuitry and the more we do behavior that is more complex, and the more we look at, you know, the brains in general, we see how this simple story is starting to uh, become uh, uh, stickier and stickier. Is, Ali, is that sad or is that a happy thing? That because do- dopamine has a bigger role now, we think, uh, yeah. or is yeah okay. So uh, actually, I want to have a revisionist history of dopamine. Oh, oh okay. nice. I, I think we should go nice. back to where it's, where it all started from, right? I mean. Um, so if you look at dopamine and what's like dopamine, what did we know about dopamine and when? I mean, 
dopamine we knew at some point that had something to do with movement, right? And we knew this like many other things in neuroscience by a malfunction. So we know that in Parkinsonian disease uh, patients, um, they lose their dopamine cells, majority of the dopamine cells, and they something becomes wrong with their movements, right? So for a long time, people believed and were looking for movement-related signals in the dopamine. And then uh, at around the same time, there was this other idea of dopamine having some role in learning from rewards, uh, which was which goes back to like Olds and Milner's stuff in uh, McGill, where they would put an electrode, they would stick an electrode in the rat's head, and every once in a while, when rat is visiting one corner of a cage, they would zap him or her. And then they would see that rodent, the rat, is more interested to explore those corners of the cage. Mm. So, and then they realize that depending on where exactly they stick this probe, uh, the likelihood of rodents visiting those corners becomes more and more. And when they put it in like midbrain VTA dopaminergic cells, I mean, this is where the rats get um, start visiting that corner more and more often. So people started hypothesizing that dopamine has something to do with reward. So um, these two accounts start to like develop mostly like independently. One is more like in the psych departments, and then on the neurology side, people interested in Parkinson's disease started looking at dopamine and interpreting dopamine in that sense. And so, I mean, another thing that perhaps inspired by Skinner and Walden too was that there's some aspect of reinforcement in this dopamine signals because like Oltz and Milner were able to teach the rats to press a lever by linking a lever press to a zap in the dopaminergic system. So you stick an electrode, zap them, they learn to press a lever. So there's now some reinforcement that motivates you to go and push the lever further and further. You just you referenced Walden too. Was it? I read that book many years ago before I knew well, before I was a neuroscientist. Is it actually in that book? Uh, and and is that a good book? Should I reread it? I don't think I should, but uh, maybe you should reread it. Yeah, I uh, read it like a year or two ago, and it was interesting. I think if you have ideas about how to shape society or uh. how to like reinforce acts or values and virtues that you want. And is it even possible? Uh, hmm. I think it's a good idea to revisit that book. But it's it's a novel, right? It's a novel by Skinner, right? So yeah, he was, yeah, Skinner. Right. So, I mean, this whole idea of how you can reinforce things and put, uh, potentiate acts and things that you value more, right? Hmm. So, and like here, it's like quite related also. I mean, this these whole series of experiments, another reason they got a boost was that uh, this is a good animal model for studying addiction, that mm. you get some stimulation in the dopaminergic system and you keep going back and back to the sites that you receive this stimulation or mm. uh, keep doing the acts that led you to this feeling of it. So this is how like dopamine got involved in the addiction research and in the motivation. But then these fields evolved uh, separately from each other. And Wolfram Schultz, actually, in his last year's talk at Vida, he started going through this very brief do history of dopamine that when he started looking at dopamine, he was after the movement signals. 
he had like monkeys mm-hmm. um, sitting on a chair and moving these bars, doing center outreach tasks and such. And to his surprise, there were like absolutely zero dopamine cells that would respond to the movements itself. And they were confused. He was like, yeah, I'm recording from muscles. I'm recording from mouth. I'm recording from eyes. I see movements. I see movement signals in uh, the EMG of this these muscles. But I don't see anything in the dopamine cells. Mm. And years later, I mean, with the advent and popularity of reinforcement learning, people started looking at and reinterpreting Schultz data. And they realized that it might be have something to do with the reward prediction error. So... I think, yeah, the dopamine story did not start. So this is the revisionist part. It did not start with the prediction error. No, I agree. But uh, and I agree with what you said about sort of the diverging uh, views about the movement Parkinson slash Parkinson uh, studies and sort of the addiction slash reinforcement studies. Uh, but I think that at least at some point and probably even now, but certainly, you know, previously, People sort of thought about, because we know that there are different sort of canonical, you know, pathways of dopamine. Uh, more, more typically, you know, what's called the uh, mesocortical limbic, perhaps, which is, you know, VTA to accumbens and then to cortex. And then perhaps the nigra striatal, uh, which is, you know, substantia nigra, pars compacta to, uh, striatum, uh, this is the dorsal part. And so I think that people did associate Sort of the nigrostriatal, uh, pathway mostly with Parkinson because in Parkinson, uh, dopamine who die are mostly in the SNC mm. and not so much in the VTA. In fact, there is sort of like a line that sort of divides, uh, and, and, and you can actually look at it, um, if you stay for something called calbinding and actually see the difference between SNC and VTA dopamine neurons. And the, the, the SNC one dies, the VTA does do not. And the SNC have sort of some of the different projection patterns. So, I think people associated the movement slash Parkinson uh, function with the depth of these, you know, SNC, substantia nigra dopamine neurons, uh, and perhaps even having a permissive role rather than a proactive role. So the idea is that maybe if you have enough dopamine in striatum, because these dopamine neurons are giving you this sort of tonic signal, tonic signal, right? So this constant, you know, constant release of dopamine, maybe that's enough to have movements, and that's all you need. And then that maybe that's why you're not seeing any movement signals in these neurons, perhaps. And, and, and the VTA neurons, the sort of mesocortical limbic pathway, that the one that's been more associated with, with reinforcement as well as, uh, as addiction and perhaps motivation. I, I don't disagree. I think one of the appeals of the dopamine story in the past was that how like beautiful, and there's like a unifying theory of dopamine cells. And this is a global broadcast signal. That's, right. They're just sitting there, and if you read some of like Schultz's older stories, or even like others have been proposing dopamine as this broadcast signal, that these cells are just sitting there, regardless of where which type they are, recording from SNC cells in the case of Schultz. Most of actually his recordings were from A8 and SNC, and then some from VTA. Majority of them do send this broadcast word prediction error signal, and I think that's one of the beauties of this theory but then in recent years we are there's people are paying more and more attention to like different functions of dopamine such as yourself in your 2019 paper where you start talking about different roles that dopamine cells have in different like functions so i think we are it's exciting times to be studying dopamine because we are going back to some of our like original thoughts 
Because like the appeal of this reward prediction error theory, I think, was so much, and it made this like focus a bit too much on one aspect of dopamine function for the past maybe twenty years. And like early on, another aspect of dopamine function that I forgot to mention is its role in co- cognition and cognitive aspects, like working memory, attention, and through the right. work of one of the early works from like. Uh, late 70s from Pat Goldman, Rakish, and her colleagues at Yale University was that how dopamine in the prefrontal cortex um, plays a role in like, sticking to ideas, keeping something in your mind, right? And like she and her colleagues ran a bunch of experiments, like increasing dopamine in the cortex, specifically in the prefrontal cortex, or ablating dopamine in the prefrontal cortex, and see how like these like working memory function get affected and they link it to some mental health disorders such as like ADHD, schizophrenia and others. But this work is also, I think, has been overshadowed by this success of the dopamine equals reward prediction error theory. Mm. And people are slowly going back to those ideas using new tools and testing some old theories coming up with new hypotheses, etc. Well, this is why I asked, though, if it's a sad thing, because there's there's an attraction to the simplistic simplistic explanations of because they, it would it's uh, a simple explanation is powerful, right? Dopamine is this, and of course, but the, the problem is it's never that way, at least in the brain. But you know, I can't tell you how many times I've been reading. You know, there's a story about two brain areas that are connected in some directional way, uh, and and then just a few years later. It's always actually they're also connected bidirectionally and through three different pathways, and and it just always just explodes into the mass of complexity that is the problem, that is the challenge of facing facing us. Yeah, I, I, I think like that you know we, I mean naturally, I would say we tend for to look for this sort of simplified uh, explanations because that makes it easier to understand. I mean, otherwise, it's it, it's very hard to just from the very get-go, look at something that's incredibly complex and make sense of it. And and with regards to what Ali said uh, about sort of the the working memory by Goldman Rakich and others, uh, that was also, together with the movement story, that was also, at least in part, I think by them too, associated with sort of the idea of a tonic dopamine signal, sort of like a mm-hmm. very slowly changing dopamine release. And that was contrasted uh, with the sort of phasic signal which was like a very, you know, very strong, rapid burst of dopamine years, which was associated with the reward prediction error. So even then when the dichotomy was known, right, because it was known, as Ellie said, from, from the 70s, I think 79 was the, was the main paper that was published by Goldman Rakich. Uh, uh, it was known that there is an effect in working memory and there is an effect on, on movement. People still say, you know what, there's sort of like these two dopamine signals, the tonic one that sort of like changes very slowly and has a mostly permissive role, sort of allowing the downstream circuits to do their thing, either movements in striatum or perhaps working memory in, in frontal cortex. And then you have this sort of phasic signal, sort of like rapidly changing, rapid bursts that would uh, have a role for, for reinforcement. And, and and again, of course, that cannot, you know, it's, it's not going to turn out to be the case um, because, as you said, things are always more complex than they seem. But but I think it, it, it makes sense to start with some, so I'm not criticizing, you know, the past because it makes sense to start with that. You need to have a starting point where you can make sense of things. And it's not wrong to simplify as long as you keep an open mind that it's probably going to be more complex that you're sort of simplified mm. explanation. 
I mean, this is a topic for another conversation elsewhere, but maybe I should just mention for the reference that I don't believe in tonic dopamine, right? But we can discuss it elsewhere. <laughs> oh, you no, don't believe in it? I don't yeah, believe you, in now it. You, I wrote you, you, about it. Yeah. You have to address that now. Yeah. It's a slight diversion, and that's fun. You know, the antagonism is good for the for the podcast. Let's, let's diverge. Yeah. Okay, let's diverge. I mean, I don't understand what tonic dopamine means. I mean, um, you, with the dopamine signal, what you measure uh, is either firing of dopamine cells, right? Dopamine cells have a tonic firing. That is, and they're pacemaking cells. They fire... Um, like three or four spikes per uh, second on average. Some of them a bit more, some of them a bit less. But then sometimes they fire these bursts of spikes. And that's how they do. They don't, you don't see, uh, dopamine cells changing their baseline firing rate at all. Like I've recorded from a bunch of dopamine cells. I haven't seen anything like this. Uchida's lab have recorded, Jeremiah Cohen and others in his lab have recorded from a bunch of dopamine cells. You don't see uh, at any point in time, dopamine cells change their baseline firing, right? So it, we don't see it in any context. We have tried it a few times. I mean, of course, um, absence of evidence is not evidence of absence, but um, we don't I'm see surprised. it in any context. You, you su- I'm surprised by this argument coming from you, Ali, because you're one of the main people that are sort of exploring this idea about how Actually, the release of dopamine in the in the axons of these cells is might not be related in some cases to the firing of the cells themselves. Exactly. So you can still have fluctuations based on sort of axonal processes, like maybe acetylcholine, right? Which I think you're, you're explored as well, and other people too. And so you can have sort of a baseline five hertz or four hertz firing which will give you a relatively constant with some f- noisy fluctuations of a tonic uh, dopamine release. And then you could have sort of modulation of that release, perhaps with some sort of uh, axonal, um, axonal processes. And of course, we don't know how much modulation we actually need because, again, if it's a permissive role, then it's enough to have maybe the 5 hertz gives you what you need to have movements. And then maybe there's some modulation on top of that, which will make movements, you know, change them a little bit. I think... With Golan and Rakic, uh, they had this inverted U, U, uh, U-shape sort of idea where you have too much dopamine is not good and too little dopamine is not good and sort of, you know, the Goldilocks idea of uh, of dopamine for working memory. So maybe the 5 hertz is sitting somewhere, you know, around the Goldilocks zone and then you can have sort of axonal processes that would modulate that. Uh, so that's why I was surprised by this argument coming from you of all people. Okay, just to answer your surprise, and then we, maybe we can move on. I mean, this could be like a never-ending conversation, or I, I'm happy to chat further. But, I mean, yes, so that's the second part of my argument, that now when you look at dopamine release, you don't, again, see slow events. So with tonic, what people often mean is that there's this like inherently slow change in the signal. When we look at dopamine release, there's also... Now that we have the tools to look at them like in the very fine temporal resolution, you would see these like rapid bursts of activity or like slow, uh, very fast changing. So one thing that I think and we think uh, in our lab that might have alluded to this tonic modulation of dopamine uh, concept was that our measurement tools of dopamine release were slow. 
So if you measure a signal slowly, you may deduce that it's a slowly changing signals. But as you start using better and better tools with better temporal resolution that's made available just in the past like two or three years, we don't see slow changes in dopamine signal. What, what, do you, what, is, what is slow versus fast here? Because a spike is fast and right. a neurotransmitter is slow, but it depends on how... That, that, so, that's exactly one of the, I think, one of um, one of the reasons I think this tonic dopamine thing is ill-defined, that no one can give a good time scale of what is the time scale of a phasic versus tonic dopamine. If it's changing faster than or slower than 20 hertz, is it now called tonic? Or tonic is a time scale of microdialysis, Holly. Right, because in microdialysis, <laughs> you measure uh, like dopamine concentration every 10 minutes. So it could be, I mean, this whole notion could have been just a... No, but I, I, obviously I'm joking, but look, in, for example, in cortex, we know that the reuptake of dopamine is, is pretty slow, right? Uh, compared to, for example, the striatum, where the reuptake is pretty fast. So and or, or ion it, channels in a, in a neuron membrane, right? That's Right, so you can, you can well imagine that even if you have sort of fast signals you know, in, in, in dopamine release, you know, because the slow, slow kinet, kinet, uh, kinetics of the reuptake, uh, in cortex, for example, you could, you could end up with sort of like smeared, uh, slower changes, uh, in, um, in dopamine, uh, concentrations. And, and, and the other point is that I don't think that, you know, the theory required, for example, by Goldman Rakich, I don't think the theory is required, you know, like very precise modulation of the tonic signal. The idea is that so you're in a bath of dopamine, and you know if you have a good enough level, you know within a range, you can do you know your working memory is gonna is gonna work fine, right? So I don't I mean you were talking about the modulation of the tonic signal, but I don't think that was ever really a strong focus of either of these theories. No, I mean yeah, that goes into I mean many of those studies. I mean I th these were like super illuminative and like insightful for me. But they were using like late seventies tools, which mostly is like slow pharmacology. I mean, dump bunch of dopamine uh, in uh, some part of the brain, let it stick around for a few hours, and see what effect it has on like activity of these cells, which is very different from its physiological um, time course. And now I think with better tools uh, like optogenetics and other things, we can have, we can start like dissecting dopaminergic signals in the frontal cortex uh, within the physiological time range that dopamine is affecting it. And in fact, that's something I will be doing uh, in the next few years. Oh, very nice. <laughs> let's let's I, go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah, no, I just want to say again a little bit uh, playing a, a grumpy advocate uh, that that it's true that you know optogenetics in, in terms of the temporal resolution is so much better than than pharmacology, but in terms of the I don't know like cellular resolution or or um, maybe spatial resolution. You're still, when you're doing, for example, activation, you're activating in a very non-physiological way, right? You activate the entire bundle, bundle, you know, super strong. So I think that we don't really yet have, you know, if you're talking about, you were talking about physiological sort of uh, like endogenous-like type of manipulations. I don't think we're there yet. Um, I should say more physiological. Definitely. No, no, I, I would agree with that. Yeah. But I just want to point out the caveat that we're still, you know, we still don't have the tool that would say that would give us the ability to you know do a manipulation that would really mimic the way 
uh, the activity is normally happening in the brain. See, this is, this is a good illustration of taking a perfectly simple story. There's phasic and there's tonic, <laughs> and 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 just um, finding all sorts of problems with it and issues and. You know, there's there's a complete gradient between phasic and tonic, and maybe there's an analog computation within that gradient. Blah blah blah. And it seems like if the brain can do something with the tools uh, it has, it it does. Um, and <laughs> I don't maybe maybe this is a good time just to uh, segue into the the panel discussion topics. Oh, the panel, right? Oh, yeah, the panel. <laughs> Come on, guys, rein it in, rein it in. No, but I think that this was a good illustration of the the complexities involved in these sorts of things rather than so what you know now all of a sudden uh deep reinforcement learning is looks like a very simple clean story relative to like what's actually happening in the brain which is you know presumably these are things are all based on or related to or an analog of dopamine related computation uh in brains so maybe just kind of to segue into that uh into the topics that we discuss in the panel i don't know if you guys have thoughts about how the panel went or if anything surprised you or if, or if um you know it, it was kind of on par for the deep uh, deep reinforcement learning kind of discussion i i don't think i was really surprised um i was hoping that we would go a little bit more and talk about dopamine I guess, uh, mm -hmm. because of the nature of the conference and that didn't happen too much. Uh, but I think that's sort of a reflection of where the field is right now, which is sort of, we're still grappling with the idea of, uh, deep learning vis-a-vis -vis brain learning. And we're sort of stuck a little bit in trying to figure out the differences and similarities and how to actually relate that. And I think that most of the people that work with DeepRL, they don't care about dopamine at all. I mean, they either care about, you know, doing better AI or perhaps care about, you know, maybe relating, you know, AI to uh, behavior. And I think what's really missing is the third uh, part of the triangle, which would be the circuit itself. And I think that part seems to me, uh, and Ali maybe, maybe has a different perspective, more removed from the conversation related to DeepRL right now. But, but that was the part that we were like trying to focus more, I guess, in the conference. But I think the panel sort of reflected, uh, where the field is, which is more, okay, thinking about the AI part and perhaps the behavior part in a maybe more high level part, um, more high level view and a bit less, uh, more removed from the circuit part. There was circuitry talk in the beginnings. Uh, and I don't know if it continued throughout. And I tried to keep bringing it back, but but to your no, credit, you did good, Paul. You did good. I, I'm not, yeah, thanks, Ben. <laughs> I was feeling down about it. The but you know, to your credit, you know, one of the the question within the abstract is: Can these new advances in deep reinforcement learning help us understand the role that dopamine plays in learning? So, but you're right; um, it was not very dopamine focused most of the time. Yeah, I mean, one thing that, um, like, I surprised me, I think, was like Matt Botwinick's self-acclaimed radical idea towards the end that brains are deep learning agents or something to that extent. Deep learning, D deep reinforcement deep RL, learning. Deep, yeah. That's right. Deep RL systems, which is interesting. I'm not sure if I agree with that, right? Because, I mean, how would you define deep? I mean, maybe there's these are just like loaded words. You can define anything to be like deep yes. reinforcement learning. 
But is it true? Is it true that brain is implementing a reinforcement or a deep reinforcement learning algorithm? Are we by this discrediting all the other cognitive aspects of brain function, for example, like the memory systems, right, that are somehow again involved with like dopamine or like either it's like hippocampal episodic memory uh, related um, systems uh, or like prefrontal working memory type systems. I mean, these are involved in learning in many kinds of actually tasks that we train human and animals to perform. It's not just a, a simple reinforcement learning algorithm like a Q learning, actor critic or any of these uh, systems that are involved. So I'm not sure. I mean, yes, maybe if you define like sure. memory to include what? You're not sure? I am not sure if like, yeah, I mean, there's an appeal to this and, uh, I think it's, I blame physicists for this, for coming up with a unifying <laughs> theory that's like yeah. trap everything. I don't know if we can do that about brain or not, because brain, I guess it's true for physics as well, but brains were not like designed. They were evolved. And one of the fascinating ideas in neuroscience in general for me is that you have these like multiple different systems that were evolved during different times for different purposes. And then they compete with each other for behavioral expression. So if you're learning to solve a two-armed band-aid uh, problem, for example, I mean, uh, if you're designing an algorithm, you can design a reinforcement learning algorithm that would solve this like beautifully and perfectly using TD uh, reinforcement learning algorithms. Use just an RPE the, and action values, etc., etc., to solve this. But when you train a human or train a rat, a monkey to do this, are they just doing it the same way that you do? And I think this goes back maybe to a broader uh, question, reflection of neuroscience these days, that can you, if you can explain an animal's behavior using a computational model. Can you there infer from this that brain is using that uh, specific process to solve this problem or not? And I would like to see more conversation about that. I think this was like a blessed panel, was the start of a conversation. But in the coming years, I would like to see more and more conversation about like what what is it that we can learn that's like are we at a point that the divergence between artificial intelligence and neuroscience has gone so far that there's no way I mean these are now different um like totally different processes, different disciplines, or are there things that can each learn from each other? And I think I'm, I'm not it was a good start for this conversation. All right, so that was uh, that was very interesting. I, I want to remark on several things. I, I won't have time, so I'll just speak a couple. So the first is that, I mean, you were very, very polite when you said, I'm not sure whether the brain is an R deep RL system. Look, I don't think Matt believes that the brain is a... I mean, it, it was obviously sort of, you know, putting it like in a sort of an extreme way, um, uh, provocative. And obviously, he works on the parallel system, but clearly, we know that the brain does so many different things in so many different ways that it cannot just be one thing. Um, I, I think the question is whether there is reinforcement learning happening at all in the way that we think about uh, in the brain. And, and I think that sort of the dopamine story points towards the answer, yes. Uh, so far, you would have to bet. I would bet yes. Uh, how exactly it's implemented, I don't know. 
is it the only thing that's happening? No, it's not. You know, but but certainly, uh, yeah, I think this is you know these extreme views. Even the people who say them, I don't think they really <laughs> believe them fully. It's just you know a way of starting a conversation and sort of uh, pointing out to a direction which could be useful. Um, and so, regarding your your last point, uh, I actually think a little bit of the opposite, which is I think that AI and neuroscience are actually coming closer together. And the reason that sort of inspired me, got me excited about this panel is the fact that in DeepRL, you have something of a very poor version, perhaps, of a circuitry uh, as compared to all the previous reinforcement learning models. And that's something that I I said, I looked at that when I first looked at this idea of DeepRL and said, wow, okay, so we are getting close in the sense that we might have something to anchor to because one of the problems that we have is exactly what Ali said, which is you have a model and you try to replicate animal's behavior and if you're very good at tweaking your model, you'll be able to do it, right? Because that's what models do. They're, they're very general, typically. And the more general it is, the better your chances are to tweaking it and then sort of recapitulating a behavior. And then you can say, well, you know, maybe the animal uses that model. And, and there is, it, it's not a, there's no great way, like Ali said, of actually validating that. And for me, the, the validation that would satisfy me would have to do with uh, a prediction about the circuitry. That would be a little, maybe even independent of the animal behavior, which we could then go ahead and sort of probe the brain by with an experiment and try to see whether that, you know, comes, whether that's being validated or not, where we get something close to what we thought. And so for me, you know, when I thought about DeepRL and dopamine, I said, all right, now we have a way maybe towards, you know, looking at the circuitry that's been, that would be predicted by the mole. And getting experimental predictions from that and then going to the brain and trying to do an experiment where we could test those predictions. And so my sense is that ultimately, whether the brain does something like DeepRL, for me, I would like to see a validation that involves a prediction about the circuitry that's being proposed by the mole that, that's, that then is being validated by an experiment. No, I think that's a good idea. So, I mean, basically what I guess you're suggesting is that like Mars level two should inform us something about like level three, perhaps, which is interesting. Right. I mean, yeah. Right. Level yeah, three being... Yeah, I, I never, because if we just stay on the behavioral level, again, you can always have a model that does whatever behavior you might find. And if the behavior is the opposite, you can find a model that does the opposite too. I mean, that's not, when you have something general, I mean, when, when I started, I was doing motor stuff, uh, motor system, monocortex, and... People had this idea about uh, how motor cortex codes for movement, uh, which is in a sort of like vector way, all the cells sort of vote to which direction the arm moves and so on. And then came the idea about um, sort of uh, optimal control and how what the cort motor cortex might be doing is to minimize a cost function that would enable you to move, like an optimal control system, the way an engineer would think about it. And one of the main successes of this idea was to recapitulate all sorts of behaviors uh, that people or animals did, the way they moved, the, the kinematics of the movement and so on, the way they would overshoot their target or undershoot in different type of tasks. And for each of these papers, and I'm being very flippant and unfair uh, on purpose, they would change the cost function uh, in a way that would allow them to recapitulate that behavior. And again, I'm being unfair, so don't, I mean, I'm not being 100% serious, but I, I, I want to bring the point that, you know, when you have a general enough theory and you can play with it enough, then recapitulating a particular behavior 
might not be that uh, that that strong of a proof, and that is why I would like to sort of mess up the Mars levels and and go to the circuitry and get predictions from that to help us, you know, get a better, a stronger proof about whether this model is actually related to what's happening in the brain. Yeah, fair. I mean, just for me to wrap up, maybe, and then I'll shut up uh, soon. <laughs> um, I think the way I see it, actually, dopamine system is a very good example for the Mar uh, three levels. Uh, and actually, the, the link between dopamine and reinforcement learning, that at the first level, what I see is that there's a problem to be solved, which is how to maximize the expected sum of future rewards. This is the problem that reinforcement learning tries to solve. And um, whether or not brains or like natural agents are doing that or not, I'm not quite sure. Economists would tell you that, yes, this is exactly what human brains are designed to do, just maximize future rewards. I'm not quite sure about that. But reinforcement learning proposes this series of algorithms. And, um, I mean, we have the old ones that I've read. They're like Q-learning, ActorCritic, Sarsa, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, we try to link them to some brain function to find the mechanism that would implement these functions. So this is the part that I'm not sure whether or not we can get a good link between these like algorithms and the way they're, the mechanisms they're implemented in the brain. Um, but like what I see, maybe just to say a sentence or two about how I perceive this conference beyond the panel, there were a few good things uh, and hopes, lights at the end of this tunnel that we are getting better tools. I mean, we saw a few talks that are like, that are introducing new tools, including like Ehud Isakov's like amazing new tools that would help us figure out a few things about better and better about mechanism. Like in the past two or three years, the dopamine research field has like shifted tremendously because of the advent, I think, of these like fluorescent dopamine sensors from like Lin Tian's lab and others. Um, and then I saw a few glimpses of a good observation leading to theory. Uh, one that I particularly am very fond of was Melissa Warden's observation that how dopamine ramps can be linked to cognitive maps or to exploration of this idea of cognitive maps. I think this is what we need more and more in neuroscience, to find the mechanism, to make an observation and then try to come up with a theory, at least, that links this to some behavioral function. And I saw an example of this in Melissa's talk that was that made me hopeful that we're making some progress, at least. Yeah, I love that. And that's that's exactly sort of the mixing of the levels that I'm I'm very fond of because that's really, you know, when I that gives me much more confidence that it's rooted in reality when I see that it's sort of uh, it bears out in at least two different levels. Um, and, and I think that's, that's what we need to do. And I agree. People are doing that. And, um, and of course we're limited by the tools we have, but even with the tools we have, uh, there's lots more things that, that, that we can do. So I was, uh, what I was hoping for is to give some context to the panel here and <laughs> what I expected happened where I, where I got a lot more. Did you guys get everything in that you wanted to talk about? I think so, yeah. I mean, I have a few other points that are like random points that I wanted to talk about, but I think we can... I mean, the, one of them maybe I want just to say here because it links to your show, which I'm a big fan of, by the way, 
And I like to keep it like an audio form, not make it a talk show, because I used to listen it during uh, to it during the, my commutes, and yeah, it's, it's like it's yeah, been very okay. informative. For oh, me, good, thanks. I mean, you had Matt Smith on your show, and I forgot. I think it was episode eighty-five, eighty-six, ninety you something. Forgot. How I could forgot. You I'm very sorry. Seriously? I apologize. It's all yeah. up here, buddy. Yeah. No. And he was talking about this fascinating idea of slow drift. Um, which I think it's, it's an amazing observation. And I like to link that to dopamine and neuromodulatory systems. Mm -hmm. I think it's a fascinating avenue for future research. And, um, this may link to like, um, more computational or, uh, like neural network architectures as well. That what we currently are inspired by in our neural nets are like fast neurotransmission meaning like excitatory inhibitory connection, right? That's like this unit A, neuron A fires, and then it would excite or inhibit neuron B. And this is like a rapid summation in one step. But what neuromodulators do is that uh, they don't necessarily have an excitatory inhibitory effect. They change the state of a neuron or a network in a way that they would respond differently to future stimuli. Is this like Roshan Kuhl's work on switching uh, states? Is that, like, that kind of thing? Maybe it goes even back to like some of the ideas that I've seen abandoned now by like uh, Dershowitz and Jeremy Siemens. That's mm. like how uh, like dopamine changes the state of a network. Like if different dopamine receptors, when activated, would move you through this like state space to different like basins of the attractor. Which I think these were like amazing theoretical ideas that have not been explored. And what Matt talked about in your uh, previous, one of the previous episodes reminded me of that, that dopamine has this role in like attention, for example, and these slow drifts might have been related to that. And we currently have no way of incorporating these in our uh, computational models, in our artificial neural networks. And this might be an avenue to do something which is like, yeah, I see myself at least in the future doing that. I proposed this to the Simon Foundation, but I think it's a fascinating idea. And we'll see more of this in the future, how like these like different neuromodulatory signals, like dopamine is one, acetylcholine, serotonin, norepinephrine, how these uh, not neurotransmitter, not non-neurotransmitters, these neuromodulatory signals mm -hmm. change the state of the network. And if there's a connection back to the uh, AI, maybe this is something that we can contribute to their understanding. Maybe this can be one of the wings of that plane. I was originally going to ask you, and now I'm going to bring it back in, about your thoughts broadly about, A, where are we in understanding dopamine and its roles, like broadly, right? Uh, but then, B, I, I wanted to get back to this idea of, you know, the idea of neuromodula neuromodulatory modulations being slow. And traditionally, you think when you think about computation, you think about binary, you think about spikes or not spikes, ones or zeros, and that's how you compute things. But do you think we're trending toward a multi-temporal multi scaling uh, story of computation where neuromodulatory effects might be a slow uh, part of that computation, whereas the spiking is just another faster part of the computation and where we're going to get this uh, eventual hierarchy of kind of scaled temporal 
computation? That's a lot to think about, I know. And that's those were two different questions. But uh, if you have thoughts on either of those, uh, I'd love to hear. hear so, them. in response to your second question, maybe first question, or yeah, let's let's talk about the first question. I think we touched on that a bit. I think we are learning more and more. I mean, as we are graduating from this dopamine RPE theory, which is again an elegant um, account of dopamine function. I like I like the graduating term term there. Yeah, sure. <laughs> Um, I think we are uh, going back to uh, test out some of the older ideas and we are on uh, and as we get like better and better tools for probing dopamine function, we are starting to explore the role of dopamine in different uh, functions and different aspects of behavior as uh, some people have shown in like a series of talks during this virtual dopamine conference feeder. Mm-hmm. But in response to your second question, I think it's like, that's very true, right? That we need this, um, to like somehow introduce this idea of processing at different time scales. And my pitch to the Simon Foundation for this idea was that, I mean, if you look at behavior, behaviors evolve over a very different time scale. Right. Whereas like neurotransmission is super fast. It happens in like milliseconds. But behavior, the time scale of behavioral changes are much slower and much different. You have different behaviors that happen and pan out at different time scales. And what could link these two fast processes and slow behavior could be the neuromodulatory systems. And as like Ben was suggesting earlier, for example, like dopamine as like usual suspect of all neuromodulation. I mean, uh, you have this idea of that, yes, dopamine cells fire and then they dump a bunch of dopamine in different parts of the brain. Um, what happens is that then these different parts will absorb this dopamine and they have different rates of absorption because there are different mechanisms involved in the absorption. For example, in the striatum subcortical regions, you have transporters that will just suck out dopamine and put it back uh, inside the cells. Uh, and the density of these dopamine transporters are different, even in different subregions of the striatum. But then in the cortex, you don't have dopamine transporters. It has to be, meta- dopamine has to be metabolized. And that's a much slower process. So dopamine uh, is hanging around for much longer in different, uh, up to like 30 seconds perhaps, right? If you get a simple puff of dopamine, it will like hang out there for much longer compared to like striatum where it gets sucked up within a second. You mean like a tonic signal, right? No, I'm just... Um, let's not get into that but so i mean and the reason i think this is an appealing idea is that if you look at these like different modules of the brain different parts of the cortex or different parts of the brain that have evolved and have these like local microcircuitry involved but then for the neuromodulatory systems there's always one region one nucleus or at least mostly one nucleus in the brain that projects the um to like all over the brain and would broadcast the signal. So that's another appeal of this dopamine as a broadcast signal. That you have dopamine cells sitting in the midbrain. And then they just dump dopamine all over the brain. So that to me is something that could change the state of the brain. This How you process. You get more dopamine. You process things differently. Now the same inputs would mean like a different thing. We had this recent paper you know, that came out in science from Adam Kepich lab. 
where he was looking at hallucinations or hallucinatory perceptions, halops, mm. I think they call it. And they're, um, the idea was that sometimes the mouse hears things that are not out there, uh, thinks that they heard something and then they move. And what they show is that how this is related to the dopamine levels in one particular part of the striatum, in the tail of the striatum in the back. So I think, yeah, um, the same cues then would mean different things, or the absence of the cues. I mean, these neuromodulatory signals change the state of the network and how these network process information, or even the same information, would mean different things. So that's my thought. Yeah, I mean, I think that the issue of timescales is actually even even worse than that, because even if you just talk about regular uh, neurotransmitters and not neuromodulators, uh, you still have different synapses can have very different timescales. And in fact, if you look at computational models, some of the models, depending on the timescale of the synapse, you can have a very different type of behavior. There's some rate models where if you have synapses that are slower than 20 milliseconds, let's say, then they behave in a completely different way than they would behave uh, synapses that are faster in like 10 milliseconds. Mm-hmm. Okay, so even within that timescale, the network itself can be very different. And you can explore that computationally. Uh, depending on, you know, the time scale of the synapses by a few milliseconds of change. Yeah. And then, of course, you have the neuromodulators, which right now are being modeled either as very fast or very, very slow, because we, let's remember synaptic plasticity, right? That's sort of the big effect of the neuromodulators like dopamine in these computational models, and that's a very, very slow, you know, a time scale. And so, but of course, within that range of, you know, a few milliseconds versus, you know, minutes, let's say, uh, you still have what Ali talked about, which is how, you know, a, you, you can have fluctuations in the way the, the neurons uh, change its state and the network change its state. And that has been mostly, I think, explored by cellular physiologists, uh, a bit perhaps less by uh, computational or, or even maybe systems uh, neuroscientists. They're starting doing a little bit now, I think. Um, and, and so that's adds a, a new uh, layer of complexity, which is something I, I like. I like complexity. Uh, maybe that's why I'm, I'm studying the brain. And just to, to piggyback on this idea of complexity, you know, Ali, your idea of the, of, you know, the appeal, I understand the appeal of the broadcast signal where you have the same signal that goes everywhere in the brain and then different brain areas will process it differently depending on the kinetics of the reuptake of dopamine and depending on their own characteristics of the network. But even that story, I would argue about a complexity because we know that different dopamine projections can transmit different signals to different areas. And so even then you have this added complexity within, even within the same nucleus where you have this concentration of dopamine releasing neurons or other nuclei when you have sort of, let's say, um, other neuromodulators that's being released, you can still have, you know, different streams of information that's being transmitted, uh, to different places as well. So I think that the more we're going to delve in, the more we're going to find that we have this further and further subdivision and further, further complexity because of this Again, this is something that Ali said, and, and there was also alluded in the panel that that brains evolved, and they evolved uh, in a way that's sort of disorganized and chaotic, and just gets things to work, and that I think naturally results in uh, in a huge amount of complexity. It is one way to think about this. Um, so, so recently, there's been a and a lot of success in uh, using dynamical systems theory to. Uh, basically reduce the dimension uh, so of, of our brain, of the activity in our brain. So our brain has tons of neurons and they're all firing, but uh, you can reduce the dimension so that 
um, it, so that the neural firing is um, fairly bound to a lower dimensional manifold, a lower dimensional shape, essentially, and its trajectories along those manifolds that underlie some of the computation. But uh, what you just said is that we may need to then increase the dimension if we're, uh, if we're considering how different areas are responding in different ways to the same signal and how that increases the complexity, the amount of interactions going on. And I don't know if that's a, if it's worthwhile uh, thinking about it in terms of how that story might map on to the let's make everything low dimensional story. I mean, it's very appealing to make everything low dimensional because then we can do a, you know, we can put it on a graph and we can look at it. If it's two or three dimensions, you know, that that's visual and we're visual creatures. So I think that's part of the appeal. Um, but again, you know, this idea about dimensionality reduction, we need to remember that dimensionality reduction, all the idea about dimensions basically are reflections of the correlations between neurons, all right? How much the activity between neurons mm-hmm. is correlated or not. That That's all it is. And so if you have a lot of neurons that are highly correlated, uh, you know, even if the pairwise correlations are not big, but the correlations overall uh, are, are, are strong, then you will be able to do this dimensionality reduction. If you have a very low correlation, the neurons are independent, everyone is doing their own thing, then you can't reduce the dimensionality. And so I, I think it's it's clear that you know neurons are connected, so they're going to have some correlations. And the more neurons you record, the more saturation you're going to have on the amount of uh, of information, uh, which allows you to, redu- to reduce the dimensionality more and more, uh, relatively speaking. But of course, that's typically done within a single brain area, uh, maybe even within a single condition. And I think that the more you go into multiple brain areas and receiving multiple inputs, including multiple neuromodulatory inputs then uh, it's going to be harder and harder to just think about a 2D space that you can nicely plot your graph uh, in different colors and call it today. I mean, there is the visualization aspect, but there also is the aspect of figuring out where the saddle points are, figuring out where the attractors are, where you can predict what state the system will be in given its uh, initial state and the condition, right? You, You will know fairly accurately if you know the surface of the manifold, the shape, the topology, then you know where the uh, activity will end up, right? So there is, it, there's, there is a computational advantage as well. I think that's independent of the dimensionality. I mean, you could have attractors, uh, you know, you could have attractors with completely independent neurons as well. Sure. Um, so, so I think that it's, it's, it's easier to look at the attractors uh, in a lower dimensional sure. space. Yeah, for sure. Uh, Ali, any anything to add? We're, we, we've gone off course, but that's fine. Yeah, I mean, no, no, I think, yeah, I have my own, like, interests and skepticisms about these, like, dimensionality reduction things. I agree with Ben that it's, they're, like, amazing visualization tools. And I think it's a good, uh, good descriptive language for, like, what computation, uh, the circuit or specific circuits, um, might be doing. But I'm not sure what we would learn beyond that about the, like, circuit dynamics or circuits mm-hmm. underpinning uh, circuits um, of a certain behavior, right? But I think yeah. Yeah, absolutely it's a good descriptive way of um, computation. I, I guess I was bringing it up just because uh, it seems like a hopeful story of being able to visualize and uh, use, you know, these lower dimensional structures uh, to simplify things. And, um, you know, that's against what Ben loves. Uh, and that, and he, he is saying, oh, good, there's more complexity with the neuromodulatory story. He's rubbing his hands together. That's what you, that's what you can't do on an uh, audio-only podcast to see that someone's rubbing their hands together. 
So or let's glee. add to the complexity here. Yeah. So Ben alluded to this idea of like, there's, this is one of the hot topics now in the field that during a virtual conference meeting, we also saw some, some traces of it, that there's a disconnect um, between firing of dopamine cells and the amount of dopamine release. Ben's laughing, but um, <laughs> the idea is that... I love it. Yeah, it's, it's been a few years now that we know that dopamine cells are not exactly your typical textbook cells, that uh, the amount of neurotransmitter here, dopamine, that they release is not a passive readout of the cell activity or the cell body activity. I mean, in, the, in your typical neuroscience textbook, you read that cells fire action potentials and then proportion uh, now to that, so they would dump neurotransmitter in their targets. But uh, when was the first study? I forgot. But even if you go back to some of the Schultz's old stuff in from like 80s, um, people were suspecting that um, if you get a brain slice where you cut out all dopamine cells, the cell bodies, and then you have just the processes in the striatum, for example, just cut it, dump them in the trash. Uh, and you stimulate that, um, you do an electrical stimulation in the same slice and you measure dopamine. You would see dopamine release. So there, there are mechanisms. And then later out in 2012, using optogenetics, uh, Steph Craig's lab and it was Joe Cheer, right? I mean, Roger Kachop. Um, and at the same time, uh, what they discovered is that if optogenetically you stimulate a certain type of interneurons in the striatum, these are uh, interneurons that release acetylcholine, then you would get dopamine released in the striatum independent of firing of dopamine cells. Dopamine cells are like cell bodies are dead. Or you cut them out, throw them in the trash, and you stimulate these certain interneurons and you would get like dopamine released. So this adds, I think, even more complexity that like, what is the computational unit of the brain? I mean, is it like firing of or of cells? Or maybe in this special case, it's not that. It's the amount of dopamine that's getting released or even maybe further. I mean, maybe we should uh, reconsider what computational unit of the brain is and think about like, receptor activation because in the end if dopamine cells fire and there's no receptor to uh listen to them have they made any sound what about water because the brain's mostly water should we consider that the, the computational it's uh, salty water right it's if it was water we wouldn't have we wouldn't be alive right it's salty water and it's actually cells that have are trying to um Get a shelter from that salty water. <laughs> and the gradient there, I think, is the heart of computation there. But yeah, I, just, I think it's yeah. the receptors, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, this adds to the complexity that dopamine cells don't... Add, it's not enough just to record from dopamine cells and infer their function. Hmm. And, uh, like, during this Vita conference, we saw, like, amazing results from Zaid Khalid's lab. Paul Kramer showed some amazing stuff and Chang Lu from Pascal Kaiser's lab showed like some another set of amazing results showing how the interaction between cholinergics and uh, dopamine uh, axon terminals in the striatum would cause like dopamine release and we don't know yet but we are trying to like multiple groups now are trying to understand what are the functional meaning of this now added computation 
and I have my own speculations. I mean, it has something to do with like saving. I mean, now we, I'm just babbling, saving like <laughs> metabolic energy because I mean, one reason, one thought that I had was that like dopamine, unlike other uh, cells, I mean, the branching of dopamine is like maybe two or threefold uh, greater than your typical cells. So changing even the membrane potential uh, would be like very metabolically costly. There have been the like, computational studies out there that shows that uh, the e- like energy in terms of ATP required to bring dopamine, um, like axon terminal potentials back to a resting potential is like much greater than your typical cells. And it like exponentially increases with the number of branching. And one reason is that maybe brain, I mean, I love this idea of evolution of like evolutions of systems sitting on top of systems. Maybe at some point they were like easier or more simplistic mechanisms or um, agents uh, lurking around the earth. And they just needed dopamine to do this reward prediction error thing or like two or three more things. But then as things became more and more complicated, uh, brain learned to design this idea of let's do a local release of dopamine in this special circuits because this circuit maybe cares only about motivation. So you don't need to broadcast dopamine all the way from midbrain to the entire brain and then use all this energy to bring back uh, all these terminals down to the resting membrane. You, you design or you evolve this uh, local mechanism for dopamine release. I think this is a topic that maybe like 10 people care about in the entire universe. So we no, should, lots we of people care about it. I actually think that, you know, both things are probably happening because even when we record from dopamine cells, we see that not all dopamine cells do the same thing. And so you can have that sort of complexity and then you can add to that the local circuit uh, sort of independent modulation uh, that Ali talked about. To have another layer of complexity that even those different signals can be even then further sort of distributed, further modulated uh, in, in separate ways. Um, and that gives you a lot of control, uh, quote unquote, that's kind of a loaded word, uh, about being able to do lots of different things uh, with this mm-hmm. type of, of neuromodulator. So I think that's, that's a good thing. Again, I, I like it. Yeah, and going back to maybe your first question, this is that I think, I mean, there are aspects of like their functions of the dopamine that are like essential to life, like learning from rewards and aversions, right? So the entire brain perhaps needs to be informed about this function, that something good happens, right? That's what and Matt said. It's the, the whole brain is a deep RL system. There you go. The whole you're, brain you're has to be informed. Uh, but nah. Uh, <laughs> the whole brain is involved, perhaps, in deep RL, but it's not. But yeah, I mean, and there's work from like functional MRI stuff from like Carl Dysorath and others' labs looking at reward signals or reward prediction signals across the brain. And you see that like brain is involved, right? So it makes sense to have a broadcast signal that would just send out these like alarms or like something good happened, something bad happened, right? If you're the visual cortex, perhaps you still need this. If you're motor cortex, you need this. But then there are like very specialized functions of dopamine that perhaps not every single circuit in the brain needs to care about, right? How to hold a thought in your memory. Perhaps prefrontal cortex wants to know that. Your visual cortex is, nah, I don't care about that. So let me do my job. 
right? So it's so these maybe mechanisms evolved, and I agree with Ben that yes, I mean it's not that like there might be heterogeneity, and there is like uh, at least we know through his work and others that there's heterogeneity in responses. But on top of that, I want to propose that there might be. Um, a multitude of local regulation mechanisms for dopamine release that serve these specific functions that we are yet to discover. Yeah, and, and that's, you know, I think that's really well supported because even though there is heterogeneity in, in, in the activity of different cells, when it comes to the big sort of salient behavioral, um, behavioral uh, contingencies like, like reward or aversion, uh, at least reward, you can see that most dopamine cells really respond to it, regardless of what they do in different kind of epochs. So certainly, <clears throat> that's something that dopamine seems to be specialized towards, even if they do other things as well that are more so sort of segregated or heterogeneous. All right, guys. Well, this is uh, it, it, what it what it was going to be at the beginning was a sort of a cursory, introductory, reflective. Uh, uh, Pre precursor to the dopamine panel and what it turned into, which is what I thought it would do, what it turned <laughs> into is a full-blown discussion that I think has turned into a real nice compliment uh, because it was focused a lot on uh, the actual dopamine, the, on neural systems and ideas around surrounding those things. So then, then the next little episode with the panel will um, focus more on that computational uh, AI and behavior side. So thanks again and... Uh, um, thanks for having me again, and this has been great. Thank you, Thank you for having us. Yeah. Brain Inspired is a production of me and you. I don't do advertisements. You can support the show through Patreon for a trifling amount and get access to the full versions of all the episodes, plus bonus episodes that focus more on the cultural side but still have science. Go to braininspired.co and find the red Patreon button there. To get in touch with me, email paul at braininspired.co. The music you hear is by The New Year. Find them at thenewyear.net. Thank you for your support. See you next time. The stair-